Grab your Bible, open with me to what is arguably the most famous two verses in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. This is the shortest two verses we will preach. The shortest passage we'll preach in our Deuteronomy series. We're only gonna tackle two verses today. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle. And while you're turning there, here is what I need you to know. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word love is not primarily about feelings. It's about loyalty. The Hebrew word that comes through in our English versions, love, is not an emotional word as much as it is a word about a decision to be loyal to God and to express that loyalty through practical acts of allegiance. So I probably don't have to convince you that as as English speakers, we have a problem with our English word, love. And here's the problem. We use the same English word, L-O-V-E, to describe a whole spectrum of different experiences that we have. So I've been known to say that I love God with all of my heart, and I do. And I've also been known to say that I love Catherine K. McMurray very much. Amen? I do. But I've also been known to say that I love the 11 p.m. candlelight service. (laughs) And I do. And I've been known to say that I love Golden Graham's cereal. And who doesn't? It's, It's delicious, right? But do you see the problem? I'm using the same English word to describe four different things that could not possibly be on the same level of significance. And so even when an English speaker says, I love God, what are the chances that they're using that word the way the Hebrews understood the word? Did you know that in the Bible, in your New Testament, in the ancient Greek, there were over six Greek words that all get translated into our English word, L-O-V-E. And even in the Hebrew, there's over three words in Hebrew, three different words that get translated as love. And so it's very possible that an English speaker could say, well, yeah, I love God, and not realize that they mean something by that that's really, really far away from what the Hebrew people meant by the statement, I love God. And so this morning, I feel like I need to preach an entire sermon on what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God? Do we know what we mean by that statement? When Jesus was asked to summarize the entire Old Testament law in a sentence, he didn't blink. He immediately quoted Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Will you look at your Bible? He said, oh, that's, I, I, can, I can summarize every single command in the Hebrew Bible in one sentence. Love God with everything you've got. And so this must be an extremely important concept. 
And it comes from this amazing passage we're going to look at this morning. Will you now look at it with me? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Here's what Moses says next. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, you may or may not know that that prayer, that little creed is extremely precious to the Jewish faith. It's arguably the most famous prayer in the Old Testament, and many devout Jews, this is, more, this is more important to them than even the Decalogue, the 10 words. For thousands of years, devout Jewish people have prayed that prayer twice a day, right in the morning and right before they go to bed at night. It's very, very precious. It's called the Shema because the first Hebrew word in the sentence is the word Shema, which basically means listen or hear. It's a very important word in Deuteronomy. We've already talked about it. It shows up over and over and over. It's not so much letting words come into your ears. It's more about a heart posture that says, I want to hear from God and I want to respond immediately through obedience. It's a very important word in Deuteronomy. And it's this reminder that from the very beginning, the people of God were not, they they were people who had been invited by God to hear his word and respond in faith. So it's extremely important. But for our purposes this morning, I want to focus on that word love. That's the word I want to talk about. And what I want to show you this morning, and I've got a slide for this, that the the Shema is going to reveal to us three things about what the Bible means by love. There's three things you need to know. The logic of love, the scope of love, biblical love, and the focus of love, or the direction of love. Of love, And I just want to take a couple minutes with each of these. What do I mean by the logic of love? That's kind of an interesting phrase. We don't, we don't typically talk about love being logical, unless you read the parenting book, Love and Logic. Anybody use love? Remember that? I always thought that was so interesting to, with a four-year-old, try to be logical with a four-year-old. It didn't always go that well. I remember Bridget, when one time we were at the dinner table, and Bridget loved steak. This is like her, she was four years old and she could not wait to eat steak. And we're sitting at the table and we had a, we had a college gal that lived with us who was a, a newly kind of, she had just become a vegetarian and she tried to use love and logic with Bridget. And she was like, she was looking at Bridget's steak and she was like, Bridget, did you know that that used to be a cow? And Bridget looked at the steak and she, and then she got real logical and she's like, at one point that cow was alive and then someone murdered that cow. And I was like, she's trying to use love and logic on my child, you know. And she goes, so that, what you're eating, Bridget, is a dead cow. And Bridget looked at the steak, and then she looked up and she said, I love dead cow. I love it. Love and logic. But here's what I mean by the word love, the logic of love. What I'm saying is that there's a direct and obvious connection between the first part of the prayer and the second part. So I'm going to put up a slide and show you this. Every scholar agrees that the Shema has two pieces. There's a proposition, it's a claim about God, and that claim naturally results in 
what Moses would say, here's the logical thing, the logical call. So the claim is, God, Israel, your God is one. And then somehow in Moses' mind, it's just logical that then what the response to that would be, love God with everything you've got. And in order to get the logic, what I need to do for just a minute is I need to go to that first half, the proposition. Do you see that phrase, the Lord is one? That phrase is actually not as clear as you might think it is. There's multiple different interpretations. So Bible nerds, you're gonna love the next three minutes. The rest of you, just bear with me. Here's what you need to know, next slide. That phrase, the Lord God, the Lord is one, is actually, it's four nouns. There are no verbs in that sentence. And that's because in Hebrew, there's no present tense verb for is. It's just assumed. So in Hebrew, if you wanted to say, the pastor is wonderful, hypothetically, if you just wanted to say that, you would just say, the pastor, wonderful. And in Hebrew, if you wanted to say something like, the Lord is one, you would just say, the Lord won. So you have Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. It's just four nouns, Yahweh God, Yahweh one. Now the interpreter has to figure out where do I put the word is and where you decide to put it will change the way you interpret the verse. So you could say Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. That's sort of your classic monotheism. It's this idea of God, God is just a singularity. There's, there's, there's no parts in God. Lots of people assume that's what the verse means. I'm gonna argue it doesn't make the most sense of the context. I think that they did believe that, but that didn't stir anyone towards loving God with everything you've got. The second way you could interpret it is Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. This would be more the sense of Yahweh is not divided in his purpose. He's, 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 um, he, there's a singularity about his purpose within who he is. Some people believe that's what it means. I think it's this last one where Moses is basically saying, hey, Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, Yahweh one. Now that would stir up love. And the reason I think that's what it means, thank you, Zach, you can put that away. The, the, the reason I think that's what's going on here is that that's been the, the, the context of Deuteronomy all throughout. Haven't you noticed this? Moses is going out of his way to warn the people of Israel against the threat of polytheism. You're gonna go into the promised land and you are gonna be tempted by all of these gods lowercase g, there's spiritual beings in our world. Now, none of them are like Yahweh, our God, but they will try to lure you away, lure you into unfaithfulness. And so Moses says, Israel, remember, Yahweh, our God, he's the only God for us. And so the logic is, yes, there's other lowercase g gods, but Yahweh is the only one that you should give your loyalty to. It's important to remember the context in which this prayer was given. It didn't come to the people in a vacuum. I want you to think about this for a minute. Remember, where are they? They're, remember the entire book of Deuteronomy, they're standing at the boundary, waiting to go into the promised land. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and Moses is urging them not to repeat the mistakes 
of their parents' generation. Do you remember this? He's saying, we're about to go in, and I need you to realize you are going to be tempted the exact same way your parents were. And for Moses, Moses knew the thing that will help you fight off all of this distraction, the thing that will help you from not repeating the mistakes of your parents is to take this creed, this prayer, and pray it daily. It's very fascinating. Bible scholars, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, the first generation on Sinai, they were not given the Shema. The Shema doesn't come in the book of Exodus. It only comes in Deuteronomy. Everything else about Deuteronomy is a repeat of Exodus. We get the 10 words, we get all the commandments, we get all this wisdom, but there's one thing that Moses only gave to that second generation, and it was the Shema. And it was Moses' way of saying, here's your weapon, here's your shield, here's the thing that can keep you from not repeating the mistakes of your parents. Have you ever thought about this? This is really interesting. It's easier to look back and see clearly the mistakes of our ancestors as Christians. We look back in church history and we're like, I can't believe they did that. It's really embarrassing, right? It's a lot easier to look back. We have 20-20 vision on their mistakes. It's a little harder to look at what we're doing now and try to imagine what future generations will look back on and go, I can't believe they did that. Isn't that interesting? I've done a lot of weddings and one of the most interesting weddings I ever got to do was I got to do a wedding in, in Ireland in a little town called Galway. Kathy and I had a dear friend from the Eugene days who called us one day and she said, will you come to Ireland and will you officiate my wedding? And I said, let me think about it. Yes, I will come to Ireland and do your wedding. And I got to officiate a wedding in the oldest Protestant church in Ireland. It's called St. Nicholas's Church. It was built in 1320. Isn't that interesting? Amazing, amazing church. This church is like a close second, but that church was like amazing. And uh, they do weddings in Ireland very differently. So in, a, in an Irish wedding, everyone comes to, into the sanctuary, all the groomsmen, all the guests, people are dressed to the nines. They wear bow ties. The women wear these really, it, it looks like a, a, a royal wedding. They wear these elaborate hats and you just wait for the bride to come and the bride comes whenever the heck she wants to. All right, it's awesome. So I'm standing there. We're waiting for the bride to show up and I strike up a conversation with the guy who sort of runs the church. He was like the church historian and he, he navigated all the things. And I, I started looking around at all the paintings and the mosaics and stuff. And he was like, I can tell you're sort of interested in the history. He was like, you know, it's really weird. We have sort of like built into the architecture of our church, all of the mistakes of our past. He was like, so did you notice? There was, a, there was like a tile mosaic over in one corner that was a picture of crusaders. Remember that? And then they had taken a fake fig plant and they put it in front of it. And I was like, I wonder why they did that. I don't know, you know? But it's like, that's sort of weird. We look back and we go, that's kind of weird. We fought wars and we did it. We, we, we took up the name of Jesus to do that. And we look back and we're like, why, why would they do that, you know? 
Or they had, this church was really fascinating, he showed me, they had built into the architecture of the church what are called squint holes or leper squints. Maybe you've heard of this. They were these little slits in the, in the concrete where people who had leprosy, they, they didn't want them inside of the church. Anyone who was sick, they wouldn't let them come into the church. But they didn't want to like exclude them totally, so they let them stand outside of the church, and they had to like peer through these squint holes so they could hear the, the priest. And that's kind of weird, isn't it? And we look back and go, why would, why would Christians do that? Why would they exclude sick people from like coming to church? That doesn't seem very Christ-like, right? Isn't that weird? And we sort of look back. And then I started thinking about it. Well, that's interesting because we have an example of that in American history. Did you know there's an entire denomination in American history that was caused by some churches not wanting one group of people to be a part of their worship service? It's called AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Have you ever heard this story? You should definitely go back and study this. There was a story in the late 1700s of two black uh, preachers who wanted to come to church at a church in Philadelphia. And when they came in, they didn't realize they had gone into the whites only section to pray and they got kicked out of the church. And they were like, you can't, you're not welcome here. You cannot pray there. And so they started a new denomination and it's uncomfortable. And we're like, gosh, how could people possibly do that? So we sort of look back and we go, that's embarrassing. I can't believe. And we, and, and, and we look back and we go, how did they not see that what they were doing didn't reflect the heart of God? Have you ever done that? You look back in your own life and you go, I can't believe I did that. That was really dumb. But everyone else was sort of doing it. Everyone had a mullet. So I grew a mullet in the late 80s, you know? It's just what, but it was dumb. And now I look back and I'm embarrassed by it, right? Okay, so this is really weird. Now you have, to, you have to think with me for a second. Let's imagine it's 100 years from now. And Christians are looking back on American Christianity in the 21st century. And this is really hard to do because we have to try to figure out, we have to take a look at ourselves, which by the way, Christians should always be doing this. And ask the question, what are they gonna look back on and go, I can't believe that they, 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 they got duped by that, right? Could be all kinds of things. My guess is they'll look back and go, they were really consumeristic with church, you know? Consumerism, you know what I mean by that? They'll probably say, it's interesting, the Christians in the early 21st century, they viewed the church not as a mission to devote their whole lives to, but as a product to be consumed kind of the American way. We're like, I'm showing up to church to, 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 as a product to, to be consumed, and, and if I don't like what they're doing at that church, I'll, I'll find another church. You know what? That's really rare. That's not what, it was, what it's been like in most of church history. It's kind of a weird part of our own moment, right? I imagine also they might look back and go, why were they so hyper-politicized, you know? They're gonna look back and go, how did they possibly let American politics divide them? I think this is gonna happen, folks. Churches, Christians in future generations will go, why did, they, why did they choose sides and then fight with each other? Why did they use politics 
thinking politics would be the way to, to spread the glory of Jesus. I have a feeling God's not up in heaven going, hey, church, I gave you a two-party system so that in the church you could pick one side and then fight each other. Lean into it, church, okay? I don't think that's what God's thinking right now. I think God's thinking the point was never to like fight and use politics. Hey, thank you. It's, It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But it's helpful to look back And it's helpful to imagine what people will think about this age. So can I just name the elephant in the room? Next year's an election year, all right? And I'm thinking about going on sabbatical again, okay? (laughs) I'm serious, okay? And I don't consider myself to be much of a prophet, but I have a feeling that we're not gonna be presented with two really good options that we get to choose between. And so can I just ask you a favor? Can River West be the church that doesn't act like crazy people next year? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Look, I will go on sabbatical. This is a threat, okay? No, I'm kidding. Here's my point. I'm not saying don't care about politics. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to care about politics. What I'm saying is let's not become so radicalized that we don't know how to engage with other people who have different views. That's not the way of Jesus. And the good news is we have a prayer that helps us fight against that. Because if your heart is, no, 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 no. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna love God with everything I've got. That can help me to go, okay, so what are the things that are lower level that I'm getting lured away to care too much about? You see how the Shema becomes like this shield. It's really beautiful. That's the logic of love. Here's the scope of love. We look now at verse five. When Moses says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, what he's saying is that the only kind of love for God that makes any sense is a love that basically says, I'm all in. I am all in. You know in the movies when there's a poker game and it's, it's usually like James Bond and he's so cool in those moments and he, he's got like the killer hand. You know that moment when he just looks up and he's like, I'm all, and he slides all of his chips in the middle of the table. It's always James Bond and I always wanna be him in that moment. And there's always an Eastern European guy with a leaky eye, you know? And then, and then and James is like, oh, I'm all in. That's, that's what this is talking about. And so it's really weird because it actually doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. Your feelings might follow and often they do. But the kind of love that Moses is describing is a decision. Oh, I am all in. There's no such thing as loving God where you leave part of yourself out of it. Every part of you gets involved. So I'm gonna stop right now and I'm gonna ask you a question. Because a lot of you are new to our church and we're still getting to know each other. And so here's my question. Is that how you would describe your relationship with God. Oh, I am, I am all in. Here's a way to think about it. Here's the thought experiment. 
Imagine if every single person in your life that you love walked away from Christianity. Your parents, your friend group, your roommate, your spouse, the people that you respect the most, what if they turned their backs and said, I'm not gonna pray anymore, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't like the church. Here's my question, would, what would you do? Would you say, I love you, mom, I love you, my spouse, I love you, my kids, but I love Jesus more. I'm all in, I'm all in. To emphasize the kind of love that he's talking about, just look at the verse, maybe we can put that back. As a, he, Moses, what he does is he piles on a bunch of words for effect, okay? He's, he's being emphatic. He's saying, here's what I mean, love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, or all your might. He's just piling on words to communicate, this is a big deal, folks. Sometimes in Christian history, Christians have interpreted that to mean like, this is like the three parts of a human being. There's like the heart, which is the emotional, the soul, which is sort of your spiritual, and then your might, which is your physical. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening is Moses is just saying, think about every single aspect of your life. Love God with it. So each word matters though. So this might be where you want to take a couple notes. So look at that word heart. In the Hebrew, the concept of the heart, it was not so much the part of you that feels things, it was the part of you that decides. It involves emotions, but it's your decision-making part. It's where the will comes. In fact, the Hebrews use the heart as the, the thinking part of you that also involved emotions. This is why Jesus, when he requoted this verse, I don't know if you noticed, he added the word mind. He said, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, because Greek speakers divided it. So Jesus said, we need two words, heart and mind, to capture what the Hebrews meant by heart, which was, this is like my decision maker. And then the word soul, that one's the one we misunderstand the most. Because we think the soul is the spiritual part of you, but for the Hebrews, it just meant who you are as a living being. A person with a soul is alive and a person whose soul is departed is dead. So it was like the living, it was the living parts of what make you uniquely you. That could involve your personality type, your preferences, your goals, your dreams, your deepest desires. Basically what Moses is saying is love God with all your heart and your soul, that means your whole self, your rationality, your mental faculties, your moral choices, your inner feelings, your desires. And then astoundingly, he adds the third word, which every time that word shows up in Hebrew, it's an adverb. Might is a word that accentuates the verb love. And literally, it should be translated, love God with all of your very muchness. There's a nice phrase, right? He's saying, don't just kind of love him. Love God with all of your heart and your soul and do that with all of your very muchness. Like go all the way. Loving God should be over the top. 
should be over the top. Amen? That's, that's the call to you. Have you ever heard somebody say that? That was a little over the top. We usually mean that negatively. Okay, that was a little too much. Did you know you can never say that about loving God? Never. No one will ever say to you, I know you love God, but you kind of love God a little too much, all right? Tone it down, friend. No one will ever say that to you. Did you know that God is the one thing in the universe that you can never love too much? Everything else, friends, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say to you. Everything else in the universe, if you love it too much, it will harm your life. But not God. If you love pleasure too much, it will ruin your life. If you love money too much, it will ruin your life. If you love success too much, it will ruin your life. If you love comfort too much, it will ruin your life. If you love physical beauty, even, now this is gonna sound a little radical, even other human beings, love them too much and it becomes kind of a weird codependent, out of balance, you can actually harm a relationship. But you can never love God too much. In fact, I'm gonna argue, when you love God over the top, it actually has the power to begin to heal other parts of your life that are out of balance. Because you're like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm loving this thing so much, it's actually preventing me from loving God with everything I've got. I need to go back. I can't focus on decreasing love over here. What I need to do is focus on increasing love here. I just need to love God with everything I've got. And so I want to ask you, how about you? Would you say, oh, that, that. Now maybe you're thinking, I'm, I'm close, but I'm not there. That's why you're here this morning. This is the call. Take all that love and direct it towards the one and only God. See what God does. Amen. It's weird that we have to be commanded to do that, but the reason we have to be commanded to do it is because we're living in a world where there's all these things that are luring you away, tempting your devotions. And so the Shema functions like this beautiful reminder, wait a minute, my life is out of balance. Why, why are things not working? Why are my relationships dysfunctional? Why don't people trust me? Maybe it's because I don't love God with every single thing fiber of my being. And so really, God's, God's called you to love him with everything you got. He's, he's really doing it for your own welfare, for your own good. So that's the scope of love. And then finally, here we go, the last one, and I'll close here, the focus of love. Or what I'm gonna call the object of love. Now, if you've been around River West Church for even a couple of Sundays, you know this is probably the moment in the sermon where I'm gonna direct your attention to Jesus. All right? Have you ever noticed that? Even in Deuteronomy, we always, they're like, I know where he's going. He's going to talk about Jesus. It's so predictable, right? Okay, that's because we believe that the Bible is this one united narrative it's always pointing us towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means even we can't even preach the Shema 
without saying ultimately, Christian, this is about Jesus. Now, some of you are like, I dare you. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sit back and watch how he's gonna get to Jesus from this, all right? So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna tell you a story. I wanna tell you the story about what the people of Israel did with the personal name of God. And I wonder if you've ever heard this story. And the, short, the shortest way I can say it is, they stopped saying his name. They stopped saying his name. And think about that. God had given them his personal name. I've used it a couple times, Yahweh. And there was a moment where the people of Israel, and, and they did this because they were devout. They did it because they wanted to be reverent they did it because the third commandment said, don't take up the, the, the Lord's name in vain. And they didn't want to ever take the name of the Lord in vain. So what they decided to do was just to stop saying it at all. And they would say other words like, like just the generic God or Elohim, they would, Adonai, they would say other, but they, wouldn't, they stopped pronouncing Yahweh. And the reason that that matters is that because they stopped saying it, they actually forgot how to pronounce it. The vowels in Hebrew come through in the oral tradition, so they didn't actually know how to pronounce the name, and so the name, we're not even sure if Yahweh is the right way to say it. It's probably pretty close, but we don't know for sure. And so here's the question, what did God do? How did God respond to that? And the answer is, he gave them another name to pronounce, and it's the name, what is the name? Jesus. It's the name Yeshua. You know what that name, you know what Yeshua means? It means Yahweh is salvation. God said, I love you. I know you, you, you stopped saying my name because you want to be reverent. That wasn't exactly the point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to give you a new name. His name is Jesus. And when you say that name, everything in your life will change. And I could go to a dozen places in the New Testament to show this. I'm just gonna show you one. There's a place in 1 Corinthians where Paul takes the Shema and he reworks it to add the name Jesus. Now I'm indebted to, lest you think that I'm smart enough to figure all this out, I'm not. I'm indebted to a scholar, a book called Jesus Monotheism, and the scholar's name is Crispin Fletcher Lewis. Isn't that an amazing name? You can only pull off the name Crispin if you're brilliant or you're one of Santa's helpers. I don't know. But he basically shows how that verse which Paul's arguing, he's, he's arguing against idolatry. What Paul does is he takes the Shema. So let me show you, Zach, put the second phrase up. Here's the Shema, look it. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord in the Greek. That's the word Kyrios, which is the way the Greeks translated the personal name of God, Yahweh. And what Moses does immediately connected to Yahweh is he gives us the name Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, any Greek speaking Jew would have heard Paul say that and say, wait a minute, you just took the Shema, which is about the one God that we serve and you've reworked it 
to incorporate Jesus Christ into it. And not only that, you're suggesting that the personal name of God, Yahweh, is now we can say it by saying the name Yeshua, Jesus. And then you start to read the New Testament, you see it all over the place. What did Paul say in Philippians 2? God has exalted Christ because of his humility and his resurrection. God's exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every other name. What name could be above every other name except for the one personal name of God? And when a person calls on that name, it changes their life. Friends, it's not enough to just talk about God generically. There's no power there. But I've been with people who were haunted with demonic oppression and they called on the name Jesus and they were delivered from spiritual evil. There's something about the name Jesus that is so powerful. I've heard people who were praying over a child with a fever that was dangerous and they said the name Jesus and they watched healing power flow. There is something about the name Jesus. I've been with people whose lives were in ruins. They were going after all kinds of other things and finally they called on the name Jesus. Jesus, why? Because there's no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. And they said, Jesus, I'm gonna love you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength. Have you called on his name? Do you say his name? Is Jesus the focus of your Christianity to worship him, to love him, to give him your all? Oh, how I hope that it is. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads with me and I'm gonna say a prayer. And I recognize just as your, as your heads are bowed, perhaps there are some here this morning for whom you're realizing I've never called on the name Jesus. I haven't taken up his name. I haven't turned to Jesus to be healed, to be delivered, to be saved. I come to church, but I don't know that I would say that I love Jesus with every fiber of my being. And so this is just such a precious moment for you because you're not here by accident. And so as we pray here, just in these moments of quiet, before we go to the table, I want to give you another opportunity. Perhaps this is your day. Are you feeling stirred? Are you feeling your heart tugged? Do you sense the spirit of God moving in your heart? That movement is an invitation right now just in the quiet of your own heart to begin to say the name Jesus. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so just a simple prayer, Jesus, I believe. I love you. I recognize my sin. I recognize, I believe you died on a cross and rose again for me. And just begin to say his name. Direct your love towards Christ in this moment. How we thank you, Father, for your word. How we thank you for the season we're in, this beautiful Christmas season, an opportunity to celebrate the birth of Christ. And so, Lord, as we go to the table now and as we worship, would you bless our church, I pray. And we love you, Father. And we ask it in Christ's name. Everybody said, amen.